0: Welcome to the Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast. Before this week's episode starts, I just want to shout out the guys uh, from The Mitchin, Australia's most anarchically hilarious food podcast based out of Sydney. Uh, recently, Andrew Levins, the uh, the host, uh, sat down with Sue Dyson and Roger McShane from Living Wines and Food Tourist, uh, who both were on an episode of the podcast earlier this year. Uh, and in that chat, they mentioned my recording with uh, Sue and Roger uh, on the Vincast and uh, that it was good research for that episode. So I really hope, uh, Andrew, you enjoyed the podcast uh, and uh, I would like to thank you uh, for, for shouting it out on the show. Uh, and if you're a listener of the Vincast, I really recommend checking out the Mitchin. It isn't for the faint of heart. Uh, things do get pretty rowdy um, and, uh, you know, particularly recent episodes uh, where they were out on the town uh, with a few beverages under their belts. But um, do, do check it out. It's very funny. It's a great look at the restaurant and dining scene in Sydney. Uh, And if you do listen to it, please leave them a rating and review on iTunes and make sure to let them know that you heard about it on this podcast. On episode 108 of the Vincast, I chat with Ned Goodwin, master of wine, importer of Australian wines into Japan, and also the ambassador for Charles Heitzig Champagne. Hello there Vincasters, welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and what an incredible week I had in Mildura uh, this past week for the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show, uh, which was a pretty grueling schedule, uh, probably more so for the judges I would think, they tasted uh, a lot of wine uh, in a couple of days, uh, but it was really amazing to Uh, Check out Mildura, um, see some of the vineyards and producers, uh, meet lots of people involved in the wine industry, particularly those focused on alternative varieties, and also to sit down with a number of people. Now, uh, if you didn't uh, or had listened to last week's episode, I sat down with Sarah Ahmed, the wine detective, who was the international guest judge. Uh, And for uh, this week's episode, I actually had a a really amazing conversation with Ned Goodwin, M.W., who was uh, up in Mildura for the uh, show, particularly uh, there was a a seminar about um, uh, alternative variety wines from Australia in export markets. So Ned, who worked for many years in Japan, uh, became the first Japan-based master of wine, uh, has some uh, experience in the Asian market. So I led a really interesting conversation about uh, how to break into those markets with these uh, different wines. So uh, I thought um, it would be fantastic while we had the opportunity to sit down, talk a bit about his background his journey uh, to becoming uh, an MW and uh, and it was really f- interesting so uh, I h- hope you enjoy the, the uh, chat uh, please do stick around until the end of the episode to find out how you can get in contact with both of us but until then I'll see you on the other side Ned thank you for making some time in uh, your extremely busy schedule i glad to be able to finally sit down with you whilst we're both here in uh, beautiful sunny warm Mildura not at all James uh, a pleasure and, uh, Good to know, be here. It was really lovely uh, listening to you speak about uh, the, the Asian market, uh, particularly in the context of uh, alternative variety wines uh, from Australia, um, and obviously Asia, and particularly Japan, is very important to you. But uh, yep. I'm interested to know, because um, I, I usually ask at the start of every episode my guests uh, if they can remember if there was a particular incident with wine uh, that actually made them think about wine in a different way. What was what was your sort of the first? important uh, interaction with wine <laughs> that's
1: uh, set you on the path? Uh. Oh, well, I was, um, I was a student in Paris for a number of years, and I was going out with a French girl at the time. I must have been about 19, maybe between 19 and 21. And I went into a store on a Sunday, and of course, being fairly naive at the time, I didn't realise that the only stores open of a Sunday, are uh, fairly sort of, you know, egregious, mm. uh, Algerian, you know, Moroccan deli-type stores, and um, the French of course having a holiday uh, right across retail on that day or at least small store retail. Anyway I went into this store and I bought a bottle of wine from the Loire Valley not really knowing where that was or what that stood for and I remember sitting there and thinking this wine absolutely lacks generosity, friendliness, Um, it was astringent, thoroughly green and unpleasant And of course, I labelled uh, not only all Loire Valley wines as such thereafter, at least (laughs) <laughs> At least for a time, um, I also labelled uh, French wine like that for uh, a considerable time, complaining to my girlfriend ever afterwards. Where's the sun? Yeah. Where's the sun in the wine? They were a bit mean. Yeah, they were a bit mean. Like like uh, Parisians uh, can yeah, be. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Of course, I learnt after that, particularly upon visiting Provence, that not everything's that way, <laughs> uh, and I think very differently now, of course. But that was my, my, you know, a very early naive impression of French wine, and it wasn't positive. And uh, conversely, you know, things are largely positive <laughs> for that, me now, uh, given what I know. That,
0: well, I mean, it's, it's nice that uh, things have improved since that first uh, inauspicious Exa- experience with, yeah. uh, with wine. I, I
1: suppose in the context of speaking here in sunny Mildura, as you put it, at the alternative um, variety show, um, I certainly see far more generosity in the wines here, as you would expect. And sure. In context of that very early experience, i rather appreciate it. Mm. Um, although I've sort of gone into the world of savoury and and textural mm. uh, a lot of the time, in contrast to those mean stingy <laughs> wines that you find so frequently at the lower price tier, of course, especially among the naive or the students as as I or the student as I was, um, there's a lot to be said about the generosity of Australian wine. Absolutely,
0: yeah. I think a, even a struggling artiste in Australia can find generosity in, in the Australian
1: wines. Yeah. Um, where were you Where are you from originally? Uh, well, look, I was born in London, okay. and when the Japanese ask me where I'm from, they usually ask it in the context of blood, uh, which is not particularly politically correct these days, but uh, I'll say I was born in London, but I was raised in Sydney, right. and in fact, I was only five months old when I was brought out to Sydney. And my mother is from Balmain, my dad's from Cessnock. Uh, He moved to Sydney when he was 17, 18 to work. So I'm quintessentially pretty Sydney, you know. But uh, it's amazing, despite that, despite having two passports and despite... Um, you know, sort of proudly proclaiming my Sydney sideness, mm. such a word. Mm. The Japanese will still ask me this, and then when I tell them that I was born in London, I'm British. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But I see myself as very Australian and very much from Sydney.
0: If you feel that you yourself are a product of, uh, of sunshine,
1: oh, much, much absolutely, <laughs> surfing all my life and whatnot.
0: Uh, and and um, were your parents interested in wine at all growing um, up? Or I wouldn't food? say they
1: were necessarily interested, but wine was always. Around, My father was an industrial designer. Okay. Uh, He still is. I mean, he teaches now sort of into semi-retirement. But uh, my point being, there was always quite an appreciation of aesthetics. Uh, They're both still good cooks. Yep. Um, And so there was wine about. I don't remember a meal passing without a bottle of wine on the table. So there was always wine. Uh, I don't remember what the... I, I do have vague memories of, uh, you know, Mick Williams Claret or something back in the 70s, um, if, if they made a Claret, but something along those lines, a very fusty old Mick Williams label. I know it was Hunter, um, and I remember some, what I can recall now, knowing a bit about European wine. It was labelled as some sort of quasi- you know, English branding of European uh, classics. So I think it was a claret or something along some those lines. Some sort sides. of wine. Merchant. In any case, yeah, 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 there was wine about.
0: Okay, uh, and um, were your parents sort of well travelled? Did were they influenced yeah, they were. by a lot of different cuisines, that kind of thing? Uh,
1: look, I, 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 I that, that they're well travelled. I mean, um, they told me all the places I'd been to. Uh, you know, when I was old enough to appreciate it simply on the, on, the, on the way back to Australia from the UK because they brought me back on the Canberra, which was, um, you know, a cruise liner until it was used during the Falklands War as an aircraft carrier. Oh. Uh, so it was uh, sort of recreated for the purpose of the war. And after that uh, sort of utilitarian moment of uh, of glory, it was then I think, sunk, yeah. <laughs> or put, it, put, put, put somewhere as a museum. But uh-huh. in any case, on the way back, we passed through all sorts of lands and cultures, and they'd lived in, um, I think, the UK for the best of 15 years. So through that experience, they'd been to the continent on numerous occasions. So, yes, but this was the 70s. I mean, I see myself in terms of the sort of seminal moments that shaped my life aside from music yeah I uh, actually know and inclusive of music largely 70s uh, although being 47 obviously my high school was mostly through uh, well actually all through the 80s yeah um, but um I suppose the point being there were still those staples of the 70s like steak Diane which I remember very clearly and still like today that my mother cooked <laughs> uh, and beef stroganoff and yep. goulash yep. and uh, I suppose you could claim that, meals. claim that these things were exotic yeah. uh, but whether they came out of um, you know the woman's weekly cookbook or they came from my parents experience in uh, Europe I'm not quite sure which probably a bit of both
0: I think of the like the Women's Weekly kind of cookbook and you think of these pictures with these really glazed sort of <laughs> yeah. dishes and yeah. like this combination of savoury and sweet pineapple and all this e- exactly. stuff. Exactly. It's, it's a bit scary when you think about it. But do you think you, you had a, a reasonably typical um, upbringing in, in Sydney? No, in not really no? because
1: um, we moved from, um, well, I suppose so to some extent, but uh, we moved um, into a place in Piemont, which nowadays is a very affluent in a city suburb, but back then it was a, re- a really rough place. Right. Uh, and my father bought a National Trust building. Um, it was narrow, but it was tall. It was about five stories, big rooms, high ceilings, and uh, obviously endless staircases being so narrow. And we lived in that and he utilized that as his office at the same time. So that was a rather unusual place to be brought up, <laughs> given that we, I wasn't living in a, in a housing commission uh, uh, place and I wasn't a petty criminal. Uh, <laughs> that said, and I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating for the sake of the story it was the type of place when you walked out of your front door um and especially in a private school uniform as i had on uh you would either hit someone first or they would hit you and so i learned to fight pretty well um and it was a bit rough and tumble but i always just pined to get the hell out of there a bit and like so prison. it was horrible but now i mean the, the great the greatest irony i mean like so many inner city neighborhoods i'm sure in melbourne as well yeah, Fitzroy, um, Columbia, yeah, yeah i mean it's 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 affluent now uh and a lot of those housing commission places on sydney harbour have been turned into huge, you know, uh, sort of penthouse apartments. In any case, we moved, or I moved, they moved, uh, and therefore I moved, (laughs) uh, to Bondi when I was... I don't know how old I was. It would have been... uh, maybe, um, you know, 13 to 15, somewhere in there. Uh-huh. And even prior to that, I'd spent a lot of time in Bondi. I used to get the 4.30 a.m. bus uh, from, uh, from Elizabeth Street opposite David Jones uh, to Bondi every morning, um, waking up in Piemont, skateboarding across the overpass and, uh, and then surfing, leaving my board at a mate's house and then doing the same thing after school. So inevitably, I think my parents just felt that they had to move there. So my brother and I moved there, and Bondi was a different story. Um, you know, these were the days before Maori. Uh, these were the days before the, the sort of uh, the hipster culture. Mm. Bondi was very much full of Maoris and heroin. Uh, and when we first moved there, we didn't have a stove, and so my parents—we finally got one. But my parents, my parents took uh, my brother and I t- pretty much out. I would say three to four times a week to eat, wow. and most of the times we were going to um, places in and around East Sydney, uh, Stanley Street, which. Is still, I mean, it's it's lost its allure today, but uh, it was sort of a little pocket of um, former Italian soup kitchens, okay, uh, to cater for the waves of Italian emigres back in the 50s, 60s, so forth. And so we're going to places there a lot, um, and some of those are still somewhat legendary, like Bar Reggio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we're going to. My mother's obsessed with Sri Lankan, Indian, Pakistani food, and as a young kid, of course, that was torture. But it was a matter of stuffing as much down your throat as you could before the before the the, the, the chili the, the kicked heat, the in. The heat got you. Yeah, yeah, but now I'm sort of appreciative in a in a morbid way now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so
0: you, uh, you were, you know, very much interested in, in music and in, in surfing. Did you have an idea, sort of, you know, late teens and into you know adulthood, what you might want to do, or did
1: you sort of think about travelling? No, not really. It was I was an exchange student to Japan when I was fifteen, sixteen. Okay. Uh, so I lived in rural Japan for one year. So that really set the tone for so much of what I do today. Even though I never set out to be so so closely connected to Japan after that time for a good 15 years oh, right. um, but that I, I learned pretty solid Japanese, I mean when I say solid I, I, first of all I learned self-discipline because I was in an area where virtually no, well no one spoke English and this was 85-86 so yeah. Japan is still relatively uninternational today, back then it was just you know sheerly insular mm. and uh, I was sandwiched between the foothills of the Japanese Alps and the Japanese Sea in uh, a prefecture or county if you will with the smallest population of any of the 43 pre in Japan, right. so that was one year going to school uh, like a normal Japanese student with a wonderful host family, um, albeit no one speaking English. So, I decided that that the book that was thrust into my hands uh, when we first arrived. Um, sort of you know we are the world uh, the children uh, you know the United Nations gathering of exchange students um, I decided that we had this textbook thrust upon us and I just started going through two chapters a night for Mm -hmm. a year Mm -hmm. and I suddenly realized that you know with a bit of discipline and uh, a sense of purpose all sorts of things can be achieved point being is going back to Australia after that was a bit of a readjustment process far harder actually than going to Japan and um, I then ended up just wanting to travel um, so I went back to Japan in 1989 for the second time okay uh, that was a bit of a sordid experience because I made the mistake like I, I suppose many human beings do of trying to recreate the same experience again and you know falling on my face and having a you know utterly miserable time but then I went on to Switzerland and Paris and New York, um, and I don't. Even though this all sounds like I'm being fueled by my parents, I haven't taken any money from my father since I was 18. So most of it was, in fact, just fueled from free food and drink at bars that my mates worked at, and yeah. in turn me working uh, for free food and, f- and drinks at bars, very, and uh, and also manning telephones and working in the tuck shop or the canteen or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, but then after moving my way through all of that, I arrived in New York. Worked my way up through the sommelier culture and ended up working in probably at the time the finest wine-listed restaurant in the world, um, and that was during the Clinton .dot com era. Drank salubrious wines that I'll never drink again, and most of us won't simply because those wines are now uh, the, uh, I suppose the, the sole, um, you know, bastion of uh, wealthy Chinese. Um, and from there, I I've broke up with a girl more. Honestly, she left me, and I was offered a role in Japan. So suddenly, I was taken back to Japan, and I said yes. I just needed to get out of New York, and so there I was. All, the, all of that sort of that that circle from or well, the semicircle suddenly became a full circle, and I was back.
0: Yeah. So whilst you were travelling, uh, do you think that? Um that that discipline you talked about, you know, having to teach yourself when you were in Japan, mm. uh, and, and and no doubt, you know, a real uh, sense of independence. Do you think that really helped you as you're traveling and having to think about who do I know in this place, and and how you can know, I get the most out of the experience?
1: <laughs> That's a really good question, and I I like to think yes, um, it certainly helped me later with Master of Wine studies and whatnot. But um, I I think I think so. I mean, you know while i would still say and it sounds a little bit pessimistic but i still don't imagine um no matter how long i live that that exchange student experience will ever be surpassed in terms of the stamp it's had on me i still think it's the greatest experience of my life to date and again i I don't think there will be a better one sadly no not necessarily sadly just acceptingly um i uh i During my sort of dilettante uh, dilettante, uh, years throughout Europe and uh, early New York, anyway, before working as a sommelier became increasingly serious, I never thought, I was never cognizant of any, you know, uh, relationship between that self-discipline and anything else. But I would imagine that, yes thinking back, I mean, I knew how to, I'd, I'd been teased, humiliated by, you know, Japanese racist students. Um, I didn't speak a lick of a language I managed to live in, um, you know, sort of uh, absolutely the middle of nowhere by Japanese standards for a year. Uh, but at the same time, nurture great friends and and um, and a loving um, relationship with a host family that took me in. And um, I still try to go back when i can uh there even though most of my time in japan is spent in tokyo so um with all of that under my belt I, I suppose nothing could really you know slay me yeah as far as your your travels um did you have
0: any ideas about what kind of experience you might wanted to have or you just sort of needed to to Go and see
1: stuff. Did you? Want yeah, to I think do at the beginning stuff, it was sort of drinking. That, yeah, all it was, that was not. Stuff? No, it was uh, the beginning. It was just notching up. Um, you know, notches on the totem pole. Sure, <laughs> but I suppose that's the mind set of a younger person. Yeah. and then by the time I'd, um, you know, had a great deal of uh, fulfillment at the higher end of the wine world through being a sommelier in New York, then my focus w- was was much. Much more, much more succinct, honed. It was far more food and wine centric. Sure. So from thereafter, my mid to late twenties to early thirties, I think I was 31 or so by the time I left New York. Then yes, it was it was more of the ilk of what we're doing now.
0: Yeah. So, um, starting to work in hospitality, um, did you? This was uh, possibly you know just a way to support yourself. At what point did you kind of think, oh, there's something more to this? And 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 how did you kind of build your connection with wine, to the towards the path that, you know that led you on to wanting to become an N.W.
1: Ah, uh, okay. So. Um, there was a seminal moment. um, I mentioned the one with the Algerian wine, but there was another one which is more related to this question and that it was perhaps the catalyst for thinking about wine and working with wine and its relationship with food and so forth and so forth as a serious career option. And um, I traveled across country from New York to Los Angeles uh, one year and um, I was I was a model when I was younger, and so the relationship between that and wine is absolutely non-existent. Except I was told that I should go to Los Angeles because maybe I could carve out some sort of career, you know, in acting or 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 so forth. And so, in preparation for this, during my early period in New York, I was going to a theater school called the Atlantic Theater Company. So Heath Ledger went there and a bunch of, um, Skeet Ulrich went there and so forth. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go over to LA. So off I went and, uh, I met this bloke, uh, David Rossoff, who ended up being one of my great mentors. Uh, he was the wine director at a restaurant called Michael's in Santa Monica. Right. And I told him, look, I don't want any responsibilities, David. I'm going to be, a, you know, this, uh, this actor. Uh, you know, I've got it all mapped out. I'm going to surf during the day. And, and then and he, I'm, I'm sure he said to you, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and he showed me the wine list, and he was surprised how, mu- how you know, much I knew about the wines on the list. And so after I said, oh, no responsibility. I want, I only want so many shifts. And then after a certain period of time, he, a couple of months or something, he came up to me and he said, look, you know, um, would you like to be my associate wine director? And I thought about it and I thought, you know what, all I really do is read wine books on the toilet anyway. (laughs) I said, why not? And so I did. And that was when I started really thriving in hospitality and seeing it as a conduit to something a bit more Serious, I didn't know quite what or when, and the MW wasn't in my mind at that point. Um, but I certainly saw a career in wine through hospitality, right? Uh, and then I returned to New York, and things sort of blazed on from there. So, even up to that point, you, you found yourself to be st- fairly
0: studious as far as y- just y- wanting to learn, le- wanting to learn more, yes, uh, you know, reading whatever you could. Presumably, you know, going to tastings. Did you did you visit wineries? Uh, Yeah, well, I used to at that point. um, I'd
1: visited wineries in France, mostly in the southwest, only because the girl I mentioned earlier was from. She was actually from the Aveyron, which is a fairly (laughs) poor wine region, if any. I mean, you know, uh, but it wasn't too far from things like, um, you know, the the the. The Basque, uh, it wasn't too far from Caor, from Bergerac, etc. Poor man's Bordeaux type areas. And so I went down to places like this and she also studied or her brother studied at the University of Montpellier. So I spent quite a bit of time in the Languedoc and then mm, skipping to... (laughs) <laughs> a number of years later, when I left New, New York, I ended up um, renting a house for almost six months in the Island. But anyway, at that point, I'd been to these areas, not necessarily main major wine regions. Uh, but by the time I was in California, we used to go, I've you know, been to Napa so many times I can't remember. And uh, even more attractive to me were places like Santa Barbara, Santa Inez, which yep. are an easy drive up the coast, hour and a half or so. Uh, and I'd always want to escape LA on a weekend whenever yep. I could. And yep. then places like Paso Robles, yep. uh, which is very beautiful uh, and it's become much more interesting with Rhone varieties since the time I lived there. Uh, but in any case, yeah. And, uh, and, so, and
0: certainly fitting, fitting in with your love of surfing. You know, exactly. Between Santa Barbara. Oh, and, yeah, Santa, you know, Santa Barbara Santa Cruz, is great. just fantastic. So, uh, yeah,
1: and I've surfed Rincon when it's been really, really good. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that area there, once you go past that, it all gets a bit cold and sharky. But, um, yeah, L.A. to Santa Barbara's, is in, include, inclusive of Santa Barbara is pretty nice. Yeah
0: yeah um so so how did you kind of um i guess get enough of a of a you were known enough as, as a sommelier yeah when you were back in new ah. york for you to uh be approached by someone to come work in japan and like okay and, so and, and, and how do they, did they do they know that you spoke japanese Well, they did because I,
1: I just met this guy who happened to be um, the CEO of this very large publicly held restaurant company called Global Dining, with about sixty-five restaurants throughout Japan, Tokyo centric, yeah, sure. and a couple in LA. So I met this guy. Oh, okay. Japanese he, restaurants, Japanese, oh, well, a bit of everything. Japanese restaurants, um, Italian, sort of trattoria type restaurants. Um, the, the typically sort of Japanese high-end French dining, and then you know, um, off the cuff. Casual Southeast Asian inspired noodle joints. Right. A bit of everything, really. But sure, sure. it was interesting because I'd come from this place called Veritas where, you know, the average spend on a bottle of wine was around 580 US dollars <laughs> a night. And uh, I'm not kidding you. I mean, people would come in and. In a, I, I, I started. I used to know Tony Bourdain because he worked across the road at Leal. Um, well, Les Al, as, as New Yorkers call it and um, he used to come into Veritas a lot because the chef there was a guy called um, Scott Bryant, and if you ever read the first book he wrote, uh, Kitchen Confidential, there's a chapter dedicated to Scott Bryant called The Life of Bryant, and he talks about Veritas and the three sommeliers in a restaurant with a tome of a wine list and only sort of circa 48 seats, and I was one of the three, you see. So at that point... The wines we were privy to, because we would vet all of the wines before serving, and not to mention that the, the, cust- the, the customer type, while they were very wealthy, they weren't largely braggarts, they were people with you know, so much money that they had a great pleasure in drinking the finest wine known to man, and they also had a great pleasure in sharing it around the restaurant. Okay. And so, I mean, we, we were pouring back then, we were pouring, Rav- I remember this because it's, it's so scarce, this wine, but we were pouring Raveneau, Premier Crude Butto by the glass, and this was... How uh, did you
0: get that big an allocation? Well, well,
1: back then it wasn't an issue because right. China hadn't come become involved. Uh, Japan wasn't as, as perhaps involved as it is, or yep. it has been for the last ten years. Yep. Uh, and so, and we were serving it for twenty five a glass. And at that point, twenty five a glass, you know, in Sydney, Melbourne, that's a glass of champagne yeah, exactly. and a fairly I mean, mundane type of champagne. Yeah. That back then it seemed very expensive. Uh, in any case, it was a great place to learn. It was sort of the uh, encyclopedia of Britannica. So I had a lot of. Great wine experience up my sleeve. Um, and um, I mean, sorry to keep carping on about this, but I just discovered all of these old menus from this restaurant that wow. I kept. And, I mean, we did an Henri Jaillet vertical uh, from the first vintage to the last of Eschezo, of of, uh, Quo Porintour. I remember we did a 61 left bank versus right bank tasting with, you know, a slew of Petrus, um, Chabot Blanc. And this was the sort of place... From great vintages. From great vintages. And back then, I mean, people were coming in and paying two, three grand for a dinner like that. And, of course, a dinner like that now, um, you know, you or I would not be the participants necessarily. But the people who would be paying, they'd be paying tens 20 thousands uh for, for a dinner like that yeah mostly probably in the likes of hong kong maybe sure. a little bit in new york but not so much anymore even yeah, uh, in any case things have changed you know the, the paradigm has shifted the dynamic has changed um and uh, i had experience by the time i met this japanese guy at a tasting uh completely impromptu we we started speaking japanese and he knew the restaurant veritas so it was just a click
0: right so it must have been you know uh, a big decision.
1: Um, it was, but I was walking through the streets of New York with my tail between my legs. Um, this girl at the time had left me, and um, i i just I just needed to get out really sure. I'd, I'd had my fill yeah and uh, it's funny, you know my my wife. Uh, at the moment. And <laughs> who knows how that will, long will last. Or will, <laughs> anyway. Uh, Do you want me to, to me edit th- that part? Uh, it's, it's fine. You can keep it on. <laughs> I'll play it to her. Um, um, where were we with that? Yeah. I... Uh, uh, she misses New York because that where, that's where we met but uh, I oh, don't miss really? it at all I okay. had such my fill of late nights and, and uh, you can imagine the sort of um, debauchery that goes on among the hospitality world in a city like that when you finish at two in the morning and sure. you want to go out and, and vindicate your existence by having a well quote unquote a civilised drink with your friends <laughs> <laughs> which turns into you know sort of barbecued duck until 4am and then so forth and so forth and I the next thing a, you know you're back on the concept, floor Yeah, in the hospitality it's an ironic concept civilized yeah so uh japan seemed a good a good uh route to self reparation to self um rediscovery so forth and so forth so i just took the plunge Mm. so uh were you uh
0: working as a a wine director for a number of different venues
1: well i was working as the wine director for the entire company of course the japanese being well this guy being this guy, uh, and liking the whole sort of corporate swagger. Uh, my my official title initially was uh, Corporate Sommelier. And I said to him, I said, this sounds sort of a bit dichotomous. I said, exactly. you might want to tweak that. And mm-hmm. actually, in the end, I just took matters into my own hands and tweaked it and just called myself <laughs> the wine director. <laughs> so, yeah. you,
0: uh, how did you find it, you know, heading back to
1: Japan and, and with a, a really, you know, and very serious job? Initially challenging because um, the level of, uh, of appreciation and um, wines that I'd come from at Veritas, which you know I was I was still in my early thirties, and it's amazing as a forty-seven-year-old you think back to those times, and uh, at that at that you think you're pretty uh, you know old and learned then, but you realise that you're not, and wisdom and humility I, I suppose just keeps uh, keeps 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 getting. <laughs> Getting larger, such to, <laughs> you, you you're filled with it more and more as you realise your fallibilities and age and weaknesses. In any case, then I, I was I was a bit I was a bit upset by it all because I arrived and I thought, you know, Jesus, these these a lot of these younger people, especially in the lower end restaurants, it, you know, they don't know the difference between white or red. Right, so right. the but then I I realised the virtues and the, the rewards of being able to communicate. Uh, Differentiate yeah. these what appeared coming from Veritas as this elite sommelier as being you know bleeding obvious. Yeah. Uh, albeit, I realised that suddenly I was bringing wine to a whole new populace, sure. and um, and I was inspiring all of these younger people, who many of whom, and I'm proud to say, have gone on uh, to become some of the more influential sommeliers in the world, um, the sommelier or the, the sub-sommelier at Noma, for example, was one of the young guys I worked with for 10 years. And oh, wow. Um, Japan's um, ambassador for Dom Perignon. He now works for my company, uh, the little company that I co-own there called Wine Diamonds. Yes. He's now our chief salesperson, but he was their ambassador throughout Japan for a number of years. And uh, we had a couple of um, um, guys in Melbourne um, who worked... Uh, at Izaki Arden and City Wine Shop and so forth, who also work with me. So, you know, I said to my dad, who was a teacher, I said, God, after all those years, there are just three to five guys who really made it. He said, look, it doesn't matter. It's never about the number. It's about the quality. Sure. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's nice to... Think that there was some sort of legacy because at the beginning it was frustrating. Absolutely, you know.
0: um, When you when you uh, started to work in Japan again, um, how did you find that the, the wine market, as far as accessibility to the sort of wines that you had grown accustomed to at Veritas, and 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 how did you find it, particularly in terms of training, and then the the actual end consumers? Was there a lot of interest
1: in those kinds of wines? A lot of interest among consumers, just given that there's um, what the Japanese called akogare, which means. Um, It means uh, a nostalgic pining for... I mean, it's it's a pretentious way to put it, but I know it no other way. They're... um it's the notion that, uh, you know, Paris is still this place of, uh, of Renoir and and the wine reflects that. And so, you know, there, I, there is an I, obsession with things French in Japan. They I, just love it.
0: I have heard that the the rates of Japanese tourists arriving in Paris and being so offended by being that, dirty that's and right. too busy that's right. and Par- Parisians being so in your actually have a term face. for it. Yeah, and it, like
1: they, they get sent to hospital? They do. They get sent to hospital. Well, you're one of the few people. When I say this to people, people think I'm just exaggerating. No, no, no. It's, a, it. it's actually it's actually a real phenomenon. They, they they get sent to hospital because they just can't accept that things don't look like a Toulouse La cafe. Yeah, you know. And uh, in any case, though, this has very positive repercussions. Not necessarily for those people who end up in hospital with some sort of psychic disorder based on the reality versus their you know perceived reality. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it has positive recu- repercussions for um, you know brand France in Japan. Sure. And I've got a good French mate, and he often says, you know, if if I shit in the Bottle, they'll drink it, and uh, <laughs> and he's not off the mark. Um, that said, uh, and so as a result, I should say, there was plenty of interest in great French wine. But what I was stunned by was uh, the lack of interest. Um, having, I, I, when I was at Veritas, Australian or at least heavily parkerized, expensive Australian, it was really it, its Halcyon era. So we were seeing Australian wine, um, you know, Rick Burgess wines out of the Barossa. Um, Wild Duck Creek some of these wines were over a thousand dollars on a wine list yeah. in the United States yeah. now we're struggling to sell Australian wine of course yeah. uh, outside of the cheap and cheerful category um, and so it was a real a really interesting time for Australian wine or at least it seemed that way I mean I was so proud to suddenly see all these Australian wines on a wine list in, in one of the best wine lists in New York or in the world uh, and by the time I got to Japan of course n- not realising that the whole Parkerized thing was on its descendancy anyway in no, the it, West it's become a bit on the nose it had indeed uh, but I suddenly saw absolutely no interest in Australian wine and it wasn't because of Parker it was just because the Japanese never had any interest anyway and they had no interest in virtually any wine outside of France Uh, Italy which was rewarding because I love Italian wine and I love everything that Italy stands for Mm -hmm. well at least culinarily (laughs) um, Huge, and I thought that was pretty sophisticated. You know, at that point though, I didn't realize other Asian markets had no idea about Italy. But you know, lots of Italian wine, and then I also saw the ascendancy, or or, or already the boom of natural wine. And this was 15 years ago; it was already huge. Uh, and became huger.
0: I've always been interested to, to find out, you know, how natural wine got into Japan and, and, and yeah, where that interest. There we, were a couple we of traveling and, and, and a couple Canada, of key tastemakers
1: there. Right. Uh, one was a guy called Francois Dumas, um, who used to, he used to be the manager for Serge Gainsbourg and uh, the singer, and uh, he, um, he leveraged that, I suppose, and became a sort of cool hipster natural wine importer. Oh wow! Uh, and then there's another one, um, a woman called Gorda. Um, as in her surname, I can't remember her first name, and she still runs a company that's very powerful in, in, in that world called right. Racine, uh-huh. um, and they R-A-C-I-N-E-S? those two really R A C I N E S yeah. as in roots, Yep. And th- th- those two really uh, brought natural wine to the to the table. I also think um, you know a number of things uh, we could all talk about minimal intervention, biodynamics, organics, be it food, wine or otherwise, as being a sort of um, a, a retort to, uh, you know, growing industrialised world uh, and with that use of chemicals. But in Japan, I think it goes another step. I think, uh, you know, the proximity to China, uh, the, the decline of the economy, um, the, um the, f- the increasing sense of being feeble in, in the face of all of this, not to mention, uh, which really sort of you know, ex- it put a, uh, an exclamation mark on, on this movement, uh, the 2011 earthquake, it yeah. suddenly made Japanese feel um, very comfortable uh, with things that they believed, whether real or not, uh, were less messed with, mess, messed with, manipulated, were of the earth, natural, so forth, okay. mellifluous. Sure, yeah. yeah. So, um,
0: at what point did you start? You, were you living in Japan when you started to think about you know furthering
1: your? I was because I just thought to myself, okay, this is. It was two. I, I arrived in Japan in I think it was two thousand end of two thousand and two, then it came back here for the first came back to australia for the first time in 11 years after securing the job going to check the operation out came back here for christmas and a good three weeks of holiday and then um went back and, and started work seriously and then the following whatever it was holiday it was, I remember it was 2003 and I went to India for the first time and I was in Goa it was the off season there was nothing particularly you know um, debauched going on but I was with so my former you- roommate in Paris yep. who'd married an Indian woman a Tamil oh, wow. and he's now a, an academic he's a professor at Columbia and he was down there studying anthropology and ta- the Tamil language went down short and sweet, two-week uh, running around with him, focused on the South. But he said to me, Ned, you know, after all knowing you in Paris and so forth, and you, you're this sommelier, now you're in Japan doing this wine directorship, he said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, you know, you've always liked reading and studying. Why, why don't you do the MW? And so he's not a wine guy, but he's, um, he's an am- ambitious, you know, studious character. And I thought, you yeah, know, okay, that sounds rather good. And so I went back and I researched it, and then I sort of got stuck into it.
0: Yeah, and um, as far as the the preparations for the MW, uh, did you find it challenging doing it in Japan? Because up until that point, there there were no Japanese MWs, and no, and and, and you know, did you did you ha, how did you kind of do, develop a network? of support as far as tasting wines? That's a really good question.
1: And um, I think the answer is going to be interesting for your listeners because I actually found it um, far less of a... Well, look, I have no comparison, but I certainly came to Australia and and, and Bordeaux and whatnot for the prerequisite seminars each year. Sure. And I found, in in lieu of that and in retrospect, Japan arguably far less challenging because the availability of wine in Tokyo, which is where I was based, is... Pretty much on par with, um, with London and New York anyway. Okay. Uh, so there were no problems there. And um, I think the greatest virtue of having done it in Japan is that I probably didn't sound like a broken record. Right. And while I didn't really have the camaraderie and um, the, 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 the fellow students' support and the tasting groups, as you mentioned, that one would have in a Western market, uh, what I did have, I had enough key tastemakers to, to, to hang around with and make sure that I could access good wine at an affordable price. Uh, But but I also found that not being part of that whole sort of, um, you know, uh, mechanism in in, in the UK and in Sydney, Melbourne, where gaggles of MW students gather together and read books and and, and repeat the same thing. Mm. I I, I only reflect, and I was told this, that what I was saying was... (laughs) actually came across as rather unique and rather different and probably stood out as a result to the examiners yeah. and of course this was there was no cognizant intent at, at all, I was just in Japan and I was getting on with what I needed to get on with yeah. but um, I read what I re- was required to. I went to the seminars uh, but perhaps I was thinking a little bit more out of the box. Right.
0: And I think that Japan is one of those unique places where there is utmost respect for someone who is you know, going away and really... Laboriously st- studying, you know the the culture of Ronin, of course. Yes, exactly. You know, where you go away for a year just so you can re- resit exams to get into university. I think yeah. that you know they would have had the utmost respect for you. Yes. you know, like really preparing quite thoroughly. How many years did it take you to it took, prepare? It took,
1: it took me. By the time I I, I began, so 2003, I, I was pondering. I think I actually started in 2004 right. and passed in 2010. Yeah, so six year, six-ish years, give or take,
0: and that, and that's reasonably good for the, yeah. I think on average for those plus. who pass, and yeah. the
1: pass rate. I don't know where it sits now, but I think it's sort of around thirty percent. Yeah, um, I think it's on average eight eight and a half years. Yeah, something like, yeah. So it's fairly fairly swift. And you and you passed first time. I passed. No, my strategy was well, of course, ideally I would have passed everything the first time. But <laughs> no, my strategy was to pass the theory, which I saw as the more challenging, laborious, you know, book driven um, rote learning uh, discipline. Yeah. Uh, a lot of essays involved and so forth, and one really has to write in a very Oxfordiad Oxfordian fashion mm-hmm. um, young children I thought okay i 'll get that out of the way uh, and so I passed that at the first attempt and then I thought with my Sommelier background as long as I learned the sort of systematic approach that they like to um, they, they'd like to see someone writing uh, tasting notes with uh, not to mention uh, honing my time management skills because you just got to bloody well finish the tasting sure um, but that 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 was a real sort of um, systematic um, you know, go for the jugular approach, but I knew, based on the wines I'd experienced, uh, and just having worked in these places throughout the world at that stage, I'd, I'd get through that with, with some disciplined approach, yep. systematic approach to, yep. to writing and, yep. and identifying and, and so I passed that the next year and that was the strategy from the outset. And what was your dissertation on? My dissertation was on, I can't remember the exact title, it was rather wordy I imagine, but my, my dissertation was on uh, the physiological preferences for Japanese uh, restaurant consumers within a very tightly defined Sort of upper tier restaurant with an accredited sommelier on the floor for wines by the glass. In fact, whether what they were getting is what they physiologically actually desired. Sure. Uh, And so I ran a bunch of um, a bunch of surveys, interviews, and so forth to gather uh, original or collate original concrete data. Uh, But of course, as I inferred during my uh, opening. intro today uh, during the speech Uh, in Japan being a consensual society with a collective sort of groupthink uh, it's often hard to get People to speak out about what they really like and what they don't like. Yeah, Um, and so I didn't, I didn't really come up with yays or nays. But what I did come up with uh, was that, which is interesting enough for a Western sort of observer. And I also came up with the fact that there was plenty of room to maneuver in Japan because, as you said earlier, they have such a respect for authority. Sure. And so Japan is, you know, they've got these legions of sommeliers out there. I always think the Japanese consumer is the best in the world because they'll, they'll just. They'll just defer to mm-hmm. the authority Accept figure, the sommelier, it, yeah. who's supposed to know. Yep. And so if the sales pitch, if the introduction is done with, with verve and you know personal anecdotes that are interesting, then the Japanese consumer is generally somebody who's going to believe... And want to drink whatever yeah. that that, that pitch is, is is toward. And as a similar, that must be incredibly you know empowering. Empowering it is. But, but also the Japanese don't 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 latch onto it right. because of the culture. They they find it very hard to be too direct. Okay, they will wait for the inevitable p- finger point to, of course, what is largely the familiar. And so a lot of those wines that are, without going to the extreme niche category of, of, of natural, a lot of the um, conventionally made wines from um, grape varieties that are lesser known, regions that are perhaps not on the mainstream map, uh, they, just, they just get lost in, lost in the wash. And I always think, God, if this, was, if this was a New Yorker with that sort of audience, that sort of customer type, the, everything goes, you yeah. know, and that's what I liked about New York. But there's something rather respectful and 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 lovely, I suppose, about such dutiful attention to the customer experience that you you have in Japan.
0: Sure. So becoming the first Japan-based MW, do you think that had a a pretty big impact and and did you you think it was aspirational for a lot of people,
1: a lot of Japanese people? I don't know if the MW became aspirational for a lot of people, but I think it had a great deal of impact in terms of um, the Japanese suddenly realising that their wine culture was being observed by an influential Outsider who happened to live there. Yeah. <laughs> if that and makes and, sense. And brought a little bit more international attention to it, it, Japan it as a did, and market. I wrote a sort of piece for Jansus. Well, I didn't write it for Jansus Robinson, but uh, I wrote a piece for actually a, a lifestyle magazine in Hong Kong um, called, of all things, Prestige. And uh, somebody so it, it always, from always Jancis, really imaginative names. I know, right. <laughs> somebody from um, Jansus read it. Um, I think it may have been Neil Martin anyway they recommend I I know Janice reasonably well and they recommended it to her and she read it and then she wanted to publish it and um, she created the title which became a bit contentious Why Japan Lost Its MW that was not my original title but this this um, piece was published or translated and then published in Japanese, mm. and that actually uh, kicked off um, a, a bunch of sleepless nights for me because it was a bit of a furore you know um, I can imagine like loss of face is such an important but, thing but in, Japan. in the end i i i just i i well you have to don't you I let it go and the and the most rewarding aspect of that story is that well i i whether the, the the translated version reflected the English version, which I thought was probably the strongest thing I've ever written, uh, I'm not sure. However... Um I, I, be, I really believe I, I said a lot of truthful, truthful things that the Japanese being such face savers, being so concerned about groupthink and so forth, could never have said. And what's wonderful about that in, in, in retrospect now, even though as I said it created a great deal of concern for me, uh, is that when I go back to Japan, which I do six to seven times a year for all sorts of things, um, there are so many young Japanese, aspirational Japanese who will come to hear me speak to conduct a tasting and so forth. And i truly believe despite the mw which was the platform had have i not written that as an mw living in japan with japanese experience across a decade plus um that that level of uh, influence probably would not have been the same
0: sure so um, once you did become uh, an MW, what were your plans? Uh, did you think long term about staying in Japan, and, and um, what, what did you think about you know coming back to Australia?
1: At least? Yeah, I was all you know even you know, before that, I was always thinking about coming back to Australia. I just wasn't sure how it could be done. Sure. When I say how it could be done, of course I could have just you know cut all my severed all my ties and just come back and started from ground zero. Yeah. But At this point, I didn't quite want to do that. Um, two children, decent paying job, so forth. Um, and a stimulating job because one thing, be quiet, birds. One thing I haven't brought up is that during that wine directorship in Japan, I was given, well, carte blanche to the tune of a pretty solid expense account right. to, go to, uh, to go on two to three trips a year wherever I wanted. Wow. And often I would go for a month. And so I pretty much traveled... Um, all of the regions around the world that I desired to go to, so places like the Marque for vidicchio and uh, and uh, where else did I go? That was rather obscure. Oh yeah, I went to sandorini for a ago, Not to mention the fact that it's a beautiful place. But yeah, I know. You know uh, but I also covered the ma- the main bases to to make sure that I'd been there for the MW preparation. Sure, sure, sure. um And so I didn't really want to leave that sort of cushy nest um but then i began working for a champagne house and i found myself i left that role as wine director and i found myself coming back to australia you know a good number of times a year and i realized given australia's buoyancy as a champagne market whether i was based in japan or here uh, meaning australia it wouldn't really be any skin off the champagne house's nose and so that's when i realized i could move back here right and so i did and, and, and is that, when you said a champagne producer, are you referring to Charles Hartson? I am, yep, Yeah.
0: Okay, and so, and did you have a, a particular love of champagne? I mean, obviously uh, everyone does. Yes, if you're into but wine, no, but... I was
1: never a champagne geek. Okay. Um, I, I, I always liked Charles. I always thought it was a... A, um, a brand I mean especially given it's reserve wine culture etc uh, that was always one of those geek brands that everyone in wine uh, appreciated and respected albeit a brand that was not marketed particularly well Okay, uh, perhaps because it was owned at least for the well, the good 10 years or so before my involvement and before the new ownership in 2011 by Remy um, and for them I think owning a champagne house they owned Krug for a while but they offloaded that to the evil empire but owning champagne houses was pretty much icing on the cake of the, the cognac uh, you know um sort of focused. sure uh but in any case um yeah uh charles was a, an interesting um, proposition for me and so i thought okay this sounds this sounds like fun and um it has been and japan is also a huge champagne market yeah that's the reason for me being able to oscillate between australia and japan
0: i mean yeah like australia and japan it easily both in the top ten yeah they are they're sort of four
1: and four and four Japan and Australia five to six they're between there somewhere sure Um, Japan more sort of high-end stuff Australia much more consumption overall but uh, obviously with Japan's greater population um that's mitigated by sh- sheer probably the numbers. Probably
0: the average price per dollar is probably a little bit
1: higher in Japan yeah. as well. Yeah, I yeah think. much well, much higher. Yeah. price per unit is... They're the second biggest consumers of prestige cuvées in the world after the US. Yeah. Whereas, whereas I think of. we're the biggest consumers overall, albeit largely non-vintage, yeah. uh, per capita in the world. but
0: uh, I always say thank goodness for Germany because at least they drink sh- cheaper champagne than we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously the relationship with Japan and Australia continues with the business that you uh, established as far yeah. as Wine diamonds. Yeah. So what, what was the particular idea behind that.
1: Um the idea behind that going back to one of your early earlier questions was my frustration at the lack of visibility um of Australian wine in uh, in Japan. And um Australia is perceived actually it's it's perceived in a sort of anachronistic vein on many levels. Um and we don't promote this sort of irreverent sophistication that we do so well here vis-a-vis lifestyle nor therefore with our wine and so it was sort of um you know rugby players surfers blonde hair and uh, and big you know buxom sort of uh, high volume wines and so i thought okay given the um sort of propensity of the the japanese tastemaker set toward the natural idiom i thought well let's show them something different and uh, and with that, that can be a platform for a whole lot of Australian producers to to work through you know, their own uh, promotions for premium or site-centric wines. And uh, so there was a bit of an altru- altruistic motive. Uh, I, I initially started as a hobby, uh, and it's sort of now grown into a money-making enterprise. So that's nice.
0: And did you have a particular um, type of producer that you want to work with? Yeah, or do you kind I, of sp- specifically target cooler climate regions? Yeah,
1: cooler climate, definitely. Again, to... Um, to, uh, you know, juxtapose the styles we were going to introduce to the general perceptions, stereotypes among Japanese um, drinkers and more so sommeliers. Um, And so definitely cooler climate regions, although we've tweaked that a bit. Um, Definitely natural uh, and definitely small uh, independent winemakers. Dynamic, yeah. Yeah, dynamic, exactly.
0: Uh, And and, and certainly some of the, the really lovely guys that you work with um, some of whom have uh, very, very kindly graced um, their presence uh, on my podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they are very involved with. Uh, I kind of the way I look at it, they're, they're this, the, what what I compare to the nineties. Um, Personality-based mm. winemakers, you know, they're they're going to Japan. They're going over to London, and they're yeah. really doing a, a great job of mm. showing. Oh, look, you know, there's still more to Australian wine. We're, we're making different styles, exactly, We're working with different grape varieties, and I, I I can imagine that the Japanese are
1: sort of really just eating that stuff up. Yeah, they, look, they they love um, they love like any human being, but the Japanese more so. I mean, they're obsessed with provenance, and I think to communicate provenance, it would be uh, the greatest. Uh, Travesty and indeed hypocrisy if one was not going to the market to. You know, as much as we talk about place, the person is such an integral, intrinsic part of that. So, Absolutely. if the person is not going and meeting the consumer and and really, um, you know, uh, communicating that place uh, through that connection, uh, then there's there's really no point. And the producers we work with are very good at that. Yeah. And uh, look, nothing is going to be from the the type of producers we work with. Um, big volume, nothing is going to really generate huge amounts of money. Um, but it's definitely generated positive change and change perceptions of Australian in Japan and for that I'm very proud absolutely yeah. A-
0: and, and no doubt you also do you know bits of consulting and, and as you know education masterclasses um, if, if people were to uh, I, I'm sure whether you have time or not if people were to wanting to engage you for, for someone like that whether it's to do with Charles Heidsick um, what's the best way for people to, to actually get in contact with you and follow you on social media and stuff like that
1: I suppose so they can just uh, well without giving my email out over, on, uh, over the uh, the, the interwebs interview, yeah. um, they can certainly uh, you know d- direct message me or uh, probably Facebook is the best way sure just find me on Facebook I'm just Ned Goodwin you and, know, and nothing fancy
0: Instagram, Twitter
1: yeah, both, both Instagram and Twitter. I had my, uh, I had my Instagram account, account hacked
0: oh, um,
1: in China recently. Oh, and wow. so I, uh, <laughs> I was brought down to um, a, an avatar of some police squadron motif, uh, zero followers, and then um, Insta- <laughs> I contacted Instagram. And um, they, made, they sent out a security code. I had to write it on hand write it on a piece of paper, hold the piece of paper up up to, next to my face, and uh, send them a selfie. And even with that, they couldn't um, reactivate. Or rectify the account. So I started off from scratch again with Instagram. So I was a bit a bit pissed off with their reaction. In any case, maybe there was something political involved with it all. Um, I was trying to operate on a VPN uh, in a Chinese hotel because, of course, Instagram of is course. illegal. Yeah. Um, and uh, in, in any case, thus Instagram. Yes, I'm on there, but I'm back back to, to, to ground zero. Twitter, been on there for a long time. Seldom use it. Uh, Facebook. I was once not a believer, but uh, you know, it's a good way to k- keep track of. Uh, everything that's going on and relatives and so forth. So I'm easily found.
0: Fantastic. And um, recently I uh, happened to listen to a really lovely podcast with uh, uh, hosted by uh, another former guest of the podcast, Tran Lam. Yes. Uh, with your younger brother who is uh-huh. uh, similarly uh, in the industry as a similarly working in Sydney. Yes. Uh, and, of course, uh,
1: he uh, told everyone the revelation that you were both massive Kiss fans. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's funny. My mother still thinks I'm the Kiss fan. She doesn't understand or she doesn't acknowledge that Glenn is probably (laughs) the, well, not the bigger fan. I mean, Kiss were my, I'm more the generation, and Kiss were my childhood superheroes, uh, and I saw them on Countdown with Molly Meldrum way before they became popular in 1979-80 with the album Dynasty, or Dynasty, I think as we say. Uh, but it was Rock and Roll All Night, which was on a 1975 album called Dress to Kill. And I remember seeing that, and it was after my seventh birthday, so that would have been 1976, on Countdown, a black and white clip. And uh, it was really raw, they were still fairly you know, early in their careers. And I thought, oh my God, I've just seen... God, <laughs> and that was it, I wanted to breathe fire, and I mean, I was seven, and of course a seven-year-old wouldn't listen to popular music like that now, they'd be, you know, on games and so forth and so forth, but back then, we, you know, there was no other distraction, and I looked so much forward to Molly Meldrum at six o'clock on Saturday night's uh, or maybe it was a Sunday night, I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> that's when I saw it. And Glenn, of course, grew up in that sphere of influence. But he went on to become his own crazy Kiss fan and saw them probably more times than I did, having spent much longer in the US. Yep. Um, but yeah, we're both pretty big Kiss fans.
0: No, I was uh, really pleased to, to hear that. But uh, look, uh, I do recommend, of, of course, listening to that episode with Glenn. But uh, I wanted to say thank you so much. Oh, sure. Pleasure, uh, for, James. That was, um, that was great. You thank know, you. I, I really appreciated hearing a little bit more about your story. And, you know, obviously having you know been an exchange student in japan myself you yeah. know it was really nice to actually hear you know where, where you started from and, and that's you know even as a 15 year old you know that relationship to japan started so well thank you very much and i look forward to uh to chatting with you further this evening and, yeah. and tomorrow
1: yeah thanks james really really a pleasure thanks a lot
0: And as always, my sincerest thanks for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. Uh, You can follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast can be found on Twitter at The Vincast. Head to my Facebook page, uh, Intrepid Wino, hit that like button, check out some of the content I share there, uh, and visit my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino. I will be posting some videos of my recent uh, experience in Mildura at the Alternative Varieties Wine Show. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed and uh, leave, leave some likes and comments. Uh, Of course, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on any number of different uh, podcast hosting platforms like iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean. Uh, Subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, And it is also a really fantastic way to provide some feedback, not only to myself, but also to potential listeners and guests by leaving a rating and review. Uh, Let me know uh, which might have been your favorite episodes. Uh, um, Would love for you to visit me at intrepidwino.com. You can get in contact with me at thevincast at gmail.com. Uh, but uh, look, I've got, I've got plenty of upcoming episodes I'm very excited about. Uh, thanks for being on board, but until next time, bye.